Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez and Gary Sheffer and I are looking forward to our discussion with our guest today, U.S. Business Editor for the Financial Times, Andrew Edgecliff Johnson, who also writes and edits a twice-weekly business newsletter called Moral Money. Gary, I know we are both looking forward to today's conversation with Andrew. How are you doing? Doing great. Looking forward to talking with Andrew. He's a great guest. So before we get to Andrew, let's talk about a few items in the news. The first one I want to talk about really has just blown up in the news the last few days. And that news is about Facebook, or maybe I should say stories are about Facebook. <laughs> exactly. And Gary, you and I work for large organizations, large companies, but can you imagine a tougher week than what Facebook has just had? Uh, no, I, I think about the global financial crisis, but even then, it was the attention was spread out over companies. Mike, this is you know solely yeah. on the spotlight is on Facebook all this week. Yeah, and let me go through a little bit of a tick list. You know, is battling an antitrust lawsuit being pursued by the Federal Trade Commission? A former product manager at Facebook pro provided damaging documents to the Wall Street Journal about the negative impact that Instagram, a Facebook-owned property, was having on teens. The same product manager also files a whistleblower lawsuit with the Securities and Exchange Commission and follows it up with a CBS 60 Minutes interview where she flatly states Facebook over and over again has shown it chooses profit over safety. On top of all of this, Facebook and its family of apps, and you can't make this stuff up, <laughs> including Instagram, WhatsApp, and Oculus, all experienced an outage that lasted nearly six hours on Monday, disrupting the digital lives of billions of its users and becoming the plot of jokes, memes, and tongue-in-cheek commentary, including one from its major competitor, Twitter, which saw billions more people flocking to its site on Monday, and Twitter posted simply, hello, literally everyone. <laughs> While all of this went on, Facebook stock price also nosedived by 5%, or nearly 5%, resulting in a loss of something like 40 to $45 billion in market cap. I mean, just incredible. I mean, that's not even a full week of activity. I said a exactly. week, days. So, Gary, first, have you ever had a week <laughs> the last few days at Facebook? I would tell you, Mike, I mentioned it earlier. I, I, you know, the, the global financial crisis when, you know, they broke the buck and, and Lehman and everyone went out, Washington, Washington Mutual. That was a tough week. Mm -hmm. But again... It, it was, there were a it lot of people. It wasn't just about GE, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it was it, about what was happening financially across the globe. That's right. And, you know, we've all had crises in our careers, but I don't think I've seen anything like this. I was watching Colbert, Stephen Colbert, the late night 
you know, talk show host last night. And he was talking about the outage of Facebook and its apps and the crowd cheered, you know, <laughs> that Facebook was down. So uh, boy, it's, you know, so this is all Mike is, yeah, that is tough. This is a culmination of many things going on with Facebook over several years, including the fact that they've lost a lot of trust and, and we can talk about it, but we didn't see Mark Zuckerberg participating in the response to this latest round of problems. And I think that's a, that's a sign of a problem when the CEO can't be a face for you during these tough times. Mm -hmm. Facebook didn't have a face. That's, very yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, the other thing that intrigues me about all of it is, is Francis Haugen. You know, so here you have this data scientist, former Facebook product manager. She copied lots of documents, puts herself in the position as, as a whistleblower. She gives those documents to the SEC and now is scheduled to provide testimony on Capitol Hill. You know, I, I think all major organizations, all, all large companies at some point face, you know, a whistleblower expose or attack, if you will, What's the best way to handle situations like this? Or what's the best way for the company to have managed his, its reputation, particularly around the, the whistleblower piece of this? You know, we've had, at GE, we had whistleblowers. And, you know, someone sent me a note yesterday that said, and we were just talking about this situation. This person has only, Haugen, has only been at the company two years and she stole 100,000 plus documents. Why is mm -hmm. the media sort of writing about that? Mm -hmm. And the reason is that you can't attack the whistleblower. You yeah. Know, in my in my view, Mike, I, I yeah. don't think well, you can. Well, in fact, it's funny as you say that. I'm reminded of uh, some historic bad news at United Airlines. You know where they pulled Dr. Dow off the plane, or had Dr. Dow pulled off the plane, and the some of the responses by the company were to go after Dr. Him, yeah. At one point, he had lost his license. And to your point, it's irrelevant because what's the news is about the company. Right, right. And, and you have to go after the facts. And I, I in, in this case, Mike, you know, Nick Clegg is uh, sort of the head of comms at Facebook. And he tried to get out of, ahead of the mm -hmm. 60 Minutes interview. He went and did some national shows on Sunday and they put out statements about what they anticipated would be on this interview with the whistleblower. I, I think from a strategy and tactics point, that was good. They should have gotten out in front of it. I, I just think ultimately bottom line is the message Facebook is delivering is that it's impossible to manage the product that they deliver in a way that protects public health and safety. That's my interpretation yeah, of their yeah, message. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I just, I think that's, that's an unsellable message. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's almost the three monkeys. Right. Right. Hear no evil. See no evil. So speak no evil. So the other thing that strikes me is the way in which beyond what Nick Clegg did. And I agree with you. What you'd like to be able to do is when there's an issue and join early. But Haugen's complaint is that Facebook's own research shows that it amplifies hate, misinformation and po political unrest. And that its Instagram app is harmful to children and particularly young girls. An issue, by the way, you and I have discussed yep. before on this podcast 
in terms of other noise about that in the past. And the company hides what it knows to protect profits over safety is sort of her argument. And the company's response though was interesting in the sense that after uh, or as 60 Minutes appears, they provide a written statement and it's not from even a known figure, it's from its director of policy communication. So <laughs> presumably somebody who reports into Nick Clegg. And you know, for time, I'm not gonna read it in its entirety, but I'll get to the gist. And I quote, every day our teams have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves with the need to keep our platform a safe and positive place. And then there were other words and then it's, to suggest we encourage bad content and do nothing is just not true. Gary, is that an adequate response given the set of facts? And what should the company be doing to defend itself or improve its reputation? You know, I, look, I, you know, it, it is not. And I'm, you know, Mike, I've talked oh. about written statements that sound like corporate speak on this program on the, this podcast previously, and that's what that sounds like to me. You know, Facebook has to get to the crux, <laughs> right? <laughs> has to get to the heart of what the issue is here at some point. And they have to do things like be more transparent and clear about what their algorithms actually do. Yeah. Right, Mike? And particularly, you know, it's one thing to say it's hard to, we want to protect freedom of speech. It's another thing to keep feeding misinformation, and disinformation to people who have clicked on misinformation and disinformation previously. So in my view, drop those kinds of statements and really begin a campaign of trying to explain to people what Facebook is and is not, how right. the algorithms work, and what you're trying to do to address problems like it's that have been identified in their own research. We understand no one wants to harm young teenage girls, but apparently your product is. Mm -hmm. So what are you doing about it? Is well, and, and there's also both from the Wall Street Journal story that kind of broke this open and the New York Times, which has continued to do almost every day, you know, stories and from different angles. But talking about the algorithms, apparently the algorithm was altered a little bit in 2018, given criticisms about the impact on elections and the impact on, on the political process. And then it was at the end of the 2020 election, at least the claim made by reporters, not just made by Haugen, that they undid some of those fixes. And that, in fact, there's a little bit of you know, controversy and things that make us angry apparently make more of us want to continue going back. Yeah, exactly. And, and the more eyeballs and the more visits and the more likes, they can demand more from their advertisers. So it's kind of a vicious little circle here. Yeah. And look, I, I, I want to give Facebook communicators, you know, a bit of... Oh. You know, look, this is a tough situation that didn't start this week. That's right. As I said at the beginning, Mike, you know, we, we talk about in, at Boston University in our crisis class, you know, there's, if you have a track record of not being straight, mm -hmm. it, it, it is just going to be compounded every time one of these things comes up and make things yeah. worse and people stop listening to you. 
Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has testified many times before Congress. Many people have not found that testimony satisfying. And, and so I, I just think maybe a fresh start mm -hmm. for, for this company that does do, you know, one of the things that went down yesterday was WhatsApp. Yeah. That's an important channel of communication for a lot of people. Yeah. Facebook is an important channel of communications for many small businesses who don't have websites, right? They they use Facebook yeah. as their to help sell product and, and run their businesses. So I, I think a fresh start might yeah. from a communication standpoint, Mike. Yeah, I think there's a smart perspective. I mean, I do think that there are challenges that they undoubtedly faced. I mean, they created essentially a tool for all of us to use online, several tools for that matter. They bought some of them, created others. But at, at the end of the day, either they haven't managed to control the beast in terms of you know, right. it, what it can ultimately do in the hands of people who are less thoughtful. All of that said, at some point, I think they they own part of that and need to be working to be part of the solution. Did you try to get on Facebook yesterday, Mike? It was it. it uh, uh, you know, I didn't primarily because people told me it was down. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I tend to go to other social media sites. Yeah, me too. Me too. Facebook. I do have a Facebook account. And, and, and it was though through that that I started looking at other social media to see what they're saying about the sites and what was being traversed to the media. Let me turn or change gears to another, I think, item in the news that a lot of companies are coming to grips with or attempting to come to grips with, especially as they start to think, particularly in office situations, about pe more people coming back to work. And that is, you know, whether to mandate vaccines for workers as they return or some combination where if employees aren't vaccinated, a weekly testing regimen is mandated or something akin to it. When and how to encourage and or require vaccinations literally has become one of the biggest issues in executive suites of major companies all over the world. On one hand, there is the fear that if a company mandates testing, there may be essential employees, employees that they really need to get critical work done will walk. And companies might also expose themselves to the public wrath of anti-vaxxers. After all, we've all seen in our local communities on the evening news, outraged parents at school board meetings who are unhappy you know, with mask requirements in public schools. You know, it's kind of crazy in my mind as a former school board member who would have thought parents would be upset over attempts to keep their children safe, right? Right. And that school boards, the National School Boards Association, asked for help from the FBI in protecting their members. It's What's wild. happening? Yeah. yeah. Wow. On the other hand, if a company doesn't require employees to be vaccinated, it could run the risk of being legally liable if customers or vaccinated employees contract COVID from unvaccinated employees. Admittedly, not all companies are created equal. You know, retailers and companies like airlines have a lot more consumer-facing employees and traffic than B2B companies, so maybe there's different calls that need to be made in different places. But the stakes were actually raised a bit last month when President Biden announced that employees of 
government contractors would be required to be vaccinated with some limited exceptions by December 8th. One executive, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby, after one of his company's pilots died of COVID, decided himself to require vaccination of all 67,000 United Airlines employees. At first, like many companies, including the one I work for, United had provided monetary incentives to win employee buy-in. It also had reached out to unions, which represent a majority of United's employees. By the way, there are companies doing the converse too, like Delta Airlines and Oxford Health in Louisiana that say they're going to charge <laughs> workers $200 per month if they do not get vaccinated to compensate for the company's increased insurance bills. But the United Airlines approach seems to be working for them. In the end, only a few hundred employees failed to comply with the mandate and now perhaps run the risk of being let go. This past week, a number of other airlines followed suit, American Airlines, Alaska Airlines, and JetBlue. Other companies from Tyson's Foods to Ford Motor Company are navigating the same. My question for you, Gary, how should companies be addressing whether to impose a vaccination mandate? Is this any different than requiring other safety standards on the job? And what role might communicators play as their companies consider or roll out a mandate for vaccines and testing? I don't think this is any different, it's slightly different than other safety standards. But look, in these kinds of situations, Mike, you fall back on your values. Yeah. Right? I think, you know, if you value employee health, you should express that in imposing a testing regimen or a vaccine mandate. And, and the communicator's role in all of this is to keep it simple, clear, consistent. And again, falling back on the set of values that you have. And I assume every company of, you know, everyone listening to this podcast, their companies value employee safety and health. Now you have to balance that, of course, with personal freedom, but, you know, you can get at that through weekly testing, that kind of thing. I did see Disney, I thought did a nice job. I was looking through some statements that companies made on this and, and, and the statement was very simple. Vaccines are the best tool we all have to help control this global pandemic and protect our employees. And Disney has a mandate for new salaried and non-union hourly workers to be vaccinated. Yeah. And it, it can be that simple. Now, the implementation, the measurement, all of those things need to be done with simply, clearly, and in some detail. And then lastly, I'd say I did see some of these Things. I don't know if it was Harvard Business Review or one other magazine on things you should consider mm -hmm. in deciding whether to issue a vaccine, uh, vaccine mandate. And one of the items very near the top was assess its economic impact yeah. on your company. And sure, you should do that. But that shouldn't, uh, to me, right. that's, that's a wrong-headed Factor. Right. You think public safety kind of ranks up yeah. there someplace, right? Right. So would you assess the economic impact of requiring your workers and fa factory workers to wear safety glasses? Right. Um, you know, so you, you you wouldn't, right? So so I just think this but don't value... you think some of the skittishness is kind of a sign of the times? I oh, mean, yes. You yeah, know, yeah. 
I mean, it's like there's always a huge caterwaul. There's lots of noise on the internet. So companies now are skittish sometimes to take a position on certain things or to acquire certain things because they think they're going to get flamed yep. by people who disagree with them. Yeah, and they're afraid they'll lose people. You yeah. know, what's, what's the impact on, on some of these issues? Not Maybe not this one, but boy, this seems like a clear-cut pro-employee, pro-customer, pro-society position. Well, Under, understanding the religious yeah. exemptions and that kind of thing, you know, you have to balance right. it. United Airlines even had, had had several hundred exemptions like that, and as to have other companies that impose such. Here, here's what I would say, Mike. In my little community here, the hospital has been having trouble getting some of the healthcare workers to get vaccinated. And, and, you, and there is a public mandate for them, for healthcare workers to be vaccinated or they face separation. Mm-hmm. I think you have to stand by those kinds of things. Yeah. It, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic that 700,000 people have lost their lives to, and particularly at hospitals and in other facilities and airlines where you come yeah. into contact with so many people, this seems like a must do. Yeah, I think it's about proximity to large numbers of people. Yes, yeah. Public health, and then it's values, as you as, as, yep. as you you know rightly stated at the outset. Speaking of values, you know, last week we had a, a great conversation with the author of Billion Dollar Loser, and you know that story was about WeWork and kind of a CEO's ego gone wild. And now we have another story yet again this week about a company that's not as well known by perhaps a lot of people outside of news production world in New York, but Aussie Media, a digital media startup led by a former MSNBC anchor, Carlos Watson, Admittedly, his term as as MSNBC anchor is short-lived, but that name, Ozzy, comes from an actual sonnet, a poem by Percy Shelley called Ozymandias. And the ironic thing is that the poem itself is about impermanence of all things and all people. (laughs) And in fact, there's this great pharaoh known by that name who has this colossal statue erected in his name and it ultimately crumbles. And that might be an apt description or representation for what is happening to Aussie media itself. Mike, Mike, can I interrupt here and just say, as an English literature major, I am so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Quoting Shelley and referencing Shelley here. I have others, I have others. Okay, you know, (laughs) and, and by the way, I believe, you know, listeners can correct me. Speaking of impermanence, I think Shelley drowned when he was only like 30 years old. There you go. There you go. There you go. And, and, and so anyway, Carlos Watson is a pretty charismatic figure, you know, an African-American executive. He and his executives, though, according to the stories that came out from the New York Times and others, misrepresented their audience size to investors, misrepresented their relationship with A&E and YouTube originals, falsified marketing claims with fake quotes from the LA Times and this Hollywood website deadline. 
advertisers from Walmart to General Motors were lied to. Misinformation was used to raise more than $80 million from a who's who of investors, including the Ford Foundation. Mm -hmm. But the downfall really, you know, came with a, a really crazy story back on September 26th. It centered on a strange phone call from February that the company had set up with Goldman Sachs. At the time, Goldman had been speaking to the media company about potentially investing mm -hmm. as much as $40 million and was impressed by a lot of the data that Aussie Media was sharing with others, but also had heard through the grapevine that it was building this great relationship with YouTube, particularly mm -hmm. its YouTube Originals unit, which has content that gets paid for, advertisers pay a premium to be associated with. So Goldman wanted to speak with YouTube about Ozzy Media's performance on their platform. So Ozzy arranged a conference call, presumably with the head of unscripted programming at YouTube Originals, whose name is Alex Piper, and so Ozzy Media sets up this three-way call. It's Goldman Sachs. It's this supposedly this guy from YouTube Originals and Ozzy Media. Goldman listened, but it, it really thought, thought it was all too good to be true. So after the call with Ozzy Media, they independently reach out to Alex Piper at YouTube themselves, only to find out Alex Piper was not on the call. <laughs> And that someone had been impersonating him on the call with Goldman Sachs. It was later revealed that the impersonator was Ozzy's co-founder and chief operating officer, Samir Rao. As this all came to a head two weeks ago, Ozzy Media announced it was closing its operations. But its CEO this past week insisted with the company, and he would arise from the ashes almost like Icarus. But Gary, you know, we're in the midst of the, the Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, her trial on fraud. We heard the tale last week of the collapse of WeWork from author Reeves Weidemann. And as we see yet another case of overstating success by Aussie media, are there times when it's necessary or excusable for startups to fake it until they make it? Well, you know, the answer probably should be no, Mike, but we know it happens. There's right? always hype, right? There's always hype and it always has been about every product and maybe every company. But boy, Ozzy seems to have proven the power of the narrative, right? Its own sort of, you know, its own sort of business model. But here's what I would say. One, you know, where is the board? Where are the boards? The thing that comes to my mind, Mike, in both the WeWork and Adam Newman case that we talked about last week, and then this one is, they sort of each had boards that were indifferent to the reality of what, you know, didn't ask hard questions. Right. And they were sort of celebrity boards, you know, Mad Dog Mattis on the, you know, we work, you know, and, and Elizabeth Holmes, I'm sorry, uh, board, Theranos. So that to me is, you know, it's okay to have a narrative that you think will get investors excited, that will get customers excited. 
as long as it's tethered to reality. And boy, you have to have people inside the organization, including your board members. I, I hate to pin it all on them because obviously people inside Ozzy must have known what was going on. Yeah. But that to me is the thread that runs through Theranos, through WeWork, and now through Ozzy is the lack of diligence by the board. Yeah. Well, and I even think about it, you know, my, my first role as a chief communications officer was with a telecom company and we had things that we were trying to put out on the market that were new and cutting edge and some of it was in development. And we seemingly found ways short of faking it, you know, to create buy-in, yeah. to help people see a new idea concept and, and, and to sort of build out the narrative as to here's what we are working on and here are the proof points to show we're directionally headed in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are ways. No, and and the response wasn't great. By the the way, this all came through a New York Times column by Ben Smith, who's just, (laughs) you know, every communicator should read his media columns. It's just so good. And and, and, and such good uh, reporting on these things. But one of the statements by Ozzy, which it was that this was just a bump in the road. And I, I think that may reflect some lack of reality within the organization that this is existential. It's not just a bump. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. So, but before we move on to our, our guest of the Financial Times, uh, as some of our listeners know, we are both, you and I, Gary, New York Yankee fans, despite the fact that Boston University, where this podcast goes out from, resides in the shadows of Fenway Park, where our arch nemesis, the Boston Red Sox, play ball. And in fact, as we're doing this, they can't see us, but I'm sitting here dutifully with my New York Yankee cap on. Every year in this podcast, we've made a prediction as to how many wins our New York Yankees would have in the Major League Baseball season going back to 2019. And in fact, in 2019, I, I predicted 103 games and they won 103 games. No, yeah, uh, now Mike year, is reminding us of that because he's about to tell you the results of this year. Go ahead, Mike, go ahead. Yeah. So last year we made our predictions based on 162 game season. And of course it was a, a bust thanks to COVID. I think they played only 60 yeah. games. This year, ever the optimist, I predicted they would win 96 games. You predicted they would win 90. The Yanks finished the regular season with 92 wins and got into at least the wild card game by a, a single hair on their chin. <laughs> yes. So, Gary, you are the winner. I owe you a meal and probably a New York style cheesecake. Oh. As we do this podcast, you know, the wild card game is yet to be played. By the time most people listen to this, that game with the Boston Red Sox will be over. Any thoughts as to how that will go and whether there'll be much of a postseason for our beloved Bronx Farmer? Well, thank you, Mike. And the cheesecake sounds delicious. I, I love it with blueberries. Yeah, you, okay. you know, blueberries on top, you know, I'm I'm a main guy, you know. So so I, boy, Chris, our great GA and editor of this podcast, is a Red Sox fan. I don't know how he's from Jersey, right? And and so 
I normally am a pessimist when it comes to the Yankees, particularly this year, because they're so streaky. Oh, and they're, I don't have any fingernails left. Yeah, but so I'm going to be an optimist. I'm going to stick it in Chris's craw here and say the Yankees will win tonight. Not sure they have a lot of life after that in the playoffs, but I'm all I care about, <laughs> to be honest, is that they beat the Red Sox, right? <laughs> well, you know, and that reminds me when the Red Sox beat the Dodgers, and I was, and they and, and they won won that series, the World Series, yeah. in LA, and people descended onto the streets around Fenway Park, and I happened to be staying in a place that was near Fenway Park. You can just hear the crowd. And were they ch chanting win? Were they chanting hooray for the Boston Red Sox? Were they denigrating the Dodgers? No, the common chant was Yankees suck. Yankees suck. <laughs> and <laughs> so, as I think you said. It is, one of the, it is one of the great rivalries of sport. I'm looking forward to the game. And I, I hope you're right. And Chris, let's just get Chris's point of view here. Chris, quickly, wh what do you think is going to happen? Yankees. Well, I've, I've got class tonight, so I won't be able to tune in. But on my walk home, I'll be going past Fenway. And, you know, because it's a home game, because, you know, we finished higher in the standing, which is pretty nice. So I'm looking forward to playing the Rays after we beat the Yankees tonight. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Time for a new GA, Mike. So there <laughs> and let's go to our guest. Again, our, our guest today is Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson, U.S. Business Editor for the Financial Times. This fall in the crux of the story, we're focusing on the intersection of business and society and the role that communications plays in unlocking solutions to the challenges that we face globally, such as climate change, racial inequities, economic disparity, mis- and disinformation, and particularly in the US, of course, government paralysis. You know, I can't remember when I first heard the phrase environment, social, and governance, but it quickly surpassed the worn and I would say inaccurate phrase that had been used for many years, corporate social responsibility or CSR. These phrases, of course, describe how business interacts with society and their many stakeholders. Today, our guest is one of the best journalists covering ESG, Andrew Edgecliff Johnson of the Financial Times. Andrew has been with the FT for 20 years and today is its U.S. business editor. He helped launch and writes for a twice weekly newsletter, Moral Money, which I really recommend for any business leader, particularly communicators. And it features news and analysis about socially responsible business practices, sustainable finance, ESG trends, and UN, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Andrew, welcome to The Crux. It's very good to be here, Gary. Thanks for having me on. So thank you for being here. We're going to get into some specific business issues in a minute, but I just want to sort of scene set here to ask you up front, where do you think U.S. businesses specifically are on this ESG continuum after the Business Roundtable's declaration? And of course, the Business Roundtable is a collection of the CEOs of major U.S. corporations. So their declaration a couple of years ago to 
commitment to stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. So how would you describe where businesses are today in that journey towards true stakeholder capitalism? Well, I think you're right to call it a journey. You know, some, even at the time that the BRT sent that, made that statement, said this was just bringing its language up to speed with what business was already doing. It had reset its kind of focus on this multi-stakeholder world that they uh, had already adopted a lot of these things. This was just updating some old language from the 1990s, which sounded a bit too much like Milton Friedman for anybody's taste these days. But the, the downside of that is that it meant that many of the CEOs that signed that pledge didn't actually feel much need to change anything that they were doing. And that's causing growing grumbling, I think, about the gap between the, the rhetoric and the reality on mm-hmm. stakeholder issues, which range from employee pay, employee pay to action on climate change. And mm-hmm. all of those big systemic issues you mentioned at the top there, like inequality, you know, people want to see change. And I think there's an impatience to see some real impact now among these stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had all these pledges, but where are the improvements? And I think that is the, the interesting moment we're in now. And what's fascinating is that the grousing isn't just coming from some disgruntled employees or environmental activists. It's coming from dyed-in-the-wool capitalists. It's coming from the very investors, you know, the Great very point. people you would think would lose out in a shift from shareholder focus to stakeholder focus. They're growling much more loudly than ever before about greenwashing. And in turn, those investors who've pulled in trillions of dollars to their ESG funds are also facing harsher questions about whether what they're doing is actually living up to the marketing materials. And so we've seen some very high profile critiques from the likes of Tarek Fancy, a former BlackRock executive who says ESG is just a dangerous distraction from the tougher action that's going to be needed to resolve these big systemic issues. It's a bunch of companies picking the low-hanging fruit while the environment is burning and sections of society are kind of collapsing. So this, for me, is actually the most fascinating time in this whole journey of ESG and stakeholder capitalism, because the whole idea underpinning it is now increasingly contested. You know, and Andrew, you you make a great point. I've always thought, look, I think what the BRT did was was right, but I've never heard a statement of purpose sort of being retroactive rather than perspective, right? That this is a catch up to things that we're already doing. And I wanna come around to your point about investors, uh, particularly after the last two years, some of the investors coming after companies that haven't made progress against what they've pledged. And, you know, with the pandemic and the fallout of the murder of George Floyd and other things that we've seen disrupting society recently. What are those investors looking for? Is it hard changes, you know, structural changes inside organizations, around boards, around risk assessment, around actions, policies, around compensation, how you reward executives? rather than just on the bottom line and EPS on broader societal issues? What are those investors looking for, Andrew? All of the above, I would say. I think one of the most interesting changes we've seen investors push through is changes to board composition. And this is also, to be fair, being pushed by NASDAQ, for example, demanding Mm -hmm. that, you know, every company listed on that exchange should have at least two so-called diverse directors. But investors are voting 
more harshly on these issues of border and diversity and on executive pay. Now, there has been real movement, I think, in boardrooms on the diversity issues. They've woken up very late mm -hmm. to the fact that their composition looks nothing much like countries. But in 2020, you know, the year George Floyd was murdered, the number of new black directors increased to 28% of all the board seats filled by Fortune 500 companies that year. That's almost triple the rate in 2019 after years of glacial progress. Now, wow. it's still going to take a very long time to move the needle, but you have you know, NASDAQ in, uh, implementing these new rules. You have Goldman Sachs saying we're not going to take companies public without, a, without some diversity on their boards, different definitions of diversity and these things. And then on the, I think the other real sort of sharp point here is on CEO pay. We've had a lot of pressure from employees, more so than from investors, on pay at the bottom end of the org chart. And we are seeing these big companies like Walmart, Target, Amazon, really kind of advertise the fact they're now starting to pay $15 starting wages. They're feeling more pressure. Seeing big companies like PayPal and Shabani do audits of what you know, how much money do people have left over at the end of the month in their call centers, in, in their factories, et cetera. But at the top end, you know, I've covered executive pay disputes <laughs> for more than 25 years now. And every year in that period, executive pay has just gone up, you know, regardless of all the hullabaloo and the protests. But we are seeing a real revival of concern about the levels of CEO pay, particularly in relation to the levels of pay at the bottom end of the org chart. It's that disparity that I think is worrying, not just the kind of the rabble rousers, but the investors themselves. And there's a sense of this being unsustainable. With And we're now seeing record numbers of US companies failing to get majority support for their executives' compensation plans in, say, on pay votes. And that feels to me like a big change that will will flow through boardroom decision-making for some time to yeah. come. And companies now have to report that disparity in their annual SEC filings. So it's Exactly. And so much of this comes down to what's disclosed and what do people pay attention to, but people really are paying attention That's to great. this issue. Great point. You know, what's interesting to me is that uh, listening to your answer to Gary relative to all these different things and your response was, well, it's all the above. What I'd be interested in hearing from you is how do the how do you see investors and particularly the financial houses and the banks sorting out these ESG matters and still holding these companies their feet to the fire on meeting that next you know. EBITDA target and you know return on invested capital and return on net assets. How does that all come into play? And is there any kind of sorting or is this kind of whatever the issue of the day is, it's like moths going to a lamp? Well, I'd say there is real tension around that short-term, long-term yeah. trade-off. I think increasingly you have the big investors, the big banks and the big companies kind of convincing themselves that playing for the long term, being responsible to all of your stakeholders is actually the best way to make money. <laughs> That's uh, kind of alienating your employees so they run off to the rival, you're alienating your customers, you know, polluting the planet to, to a point where you lose your license to operate in the eyes of society. It's not a great long-term strategy. And I think you know, every investor is trying to balance 
short-term returns with with long-term growth. And you know, if you think about your own profession, you've always tried to balance, okay, what are we going to say at the quarterly earnings with we need a story for why investors should be buying in and sticking with Absolutely. us for, for a few years. Yeah. And you know, the story over the years, it might be digital transformation, it might be emerging markets, you know, there, there are different fashions in the stories and the narratives that pull investors in for long term. Right now, ESG is a very powerful narrative. And I think that is buying companies some cover for short-term performance. But we've also seen some very prof- prominent sustainable businesses like Danone, most famously in France, you know, where Emmanuel Faber said, we are an entreprise à mission. We're a mission-driven enterprise now. We're North American operations are a B corporation, a you know, benefit corporation. Yeah. And yet he lost his job when the numbers weren't pleasing yeah. investors. Now, so the, there is a real balance. In many ways, I don't think it's hugely different from the balance that executives have always had to strike. I think I'm a little surprised we don't see more executives explicitly say to their investors, look, if you want this long-term change in what we do, here's what it's going to cost in the short term. Give us cover. Give us air cover. Give us time. There doesn't seem to be a very courageous conversation in that relation. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, Gary mentioned your newsletter, Moral Money, and I love it. I'm just kind of curious how you came to the name. You know, when I first approached it, it's like, is this about right or wrong? Is it about corporations seeking that better balance? Is it about you know, long-term versus short-term and, and, and the angst that corporations have in getting there. Tell us a little bit about what you intended in terms of the name and, and, and what kind of your narrative is for the newsletter. Well, I think it's always dangerous for any journalist to claim to be an arbiter of morality, and I certainly <laughs> won't. The real reason we chose it, and I give my colleague Gillian Tett all credit for coming up with the name, is that none of the other labels stakeholder capitalism, inclusive capitalism, ESG, impact investing, sustainable finance, that sort of quite covered the whole span of what we saw going on in companies, in banks, in giant asset managers and beyond. It, all of these kind of described a, a slice of that, but not the whole picture. And we really saw this as a kind of reformation in capitalism, but at least a, an attempted reformation. Well, the jury will be out for some time on how real it is, I think. But the other reason was going back to to your to, you know your point Gary about CSR you know which is a term we've been writing up for probably 30 years is we'd seen the branding of some of these ideas change over the years you know corporate social responsibility the triple bottom line exactly etc 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 so we wanted a brand that was both broad enough to encompass the whole span of what's going on and flexible enough to 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 move with the times but uh, but I think even in your phrasing Mike you know What's a better balance? You know, that implies a right or wrong value judgment of yeah. some sort. But, but I think we've always been very clear. We're not here to proselytize. We're here yeah. to cover this phenomenon, not to advocate yeah. for it. Yeah, I, I think what is evident, and, and, and clearly even by your statements today, is that there are lots of companies that are at least trying to demonstrate in some way, if only through words, that they're doing well by doing good. And what's intriguing to me is that in that dance of trying to communicate that, more and more companies seemingly are running afoul, as you said, even of investors, but also regulators, 
you know, there isn't, I mean, there are very few companies, there are probably some sectors in some companies or some industries where people aren't out there fully on net zero emissions claims by 2050. We've often seen as these claims come out that European regulators are kind of leading the way, but more recently, some of them have started to come out to literally regulate a lot of the words that are used to describe ESG in various forms. And in fact, just recently, there were a number of investment houses kind of encouraged by changing rules in in Europe, saying that they had very little tolerance for this word ESG integrated. I don't know what that means, but, but supposedly- That's probably healthy. They, they, they were doing well, you know, by, by ESG standards. But are we seeing a shift today in how government entities are going to regulate this space in terms of how companies explicitly state what they're doing or not? Yes, we are. And I think this is going to be an increasingly important story in the next few years. Europe has indeed led on, on disclosure rules and on enforcement. And you're seeing a few high-profile high case studies right now, like DWS, the Deutsche Bank offshoot, where European regulators are putting sustainability claims under a pretty harsh microscope. But you know, here, the SEC is signaling very clearly now under Gary Gensler that it's going to be cracking down on greenwashing. Bank regulators like the New York Fed are getting increasingly animated about this too. And I think, in a way, regulators have to. You know, if you think about the trillions of dollars that have gone into ESG funds, if investors start to lose faith in the whole idea, if they start to think it's all greenwashing, and if they get presented with case after case where the reality doesn't match the rhetoric, then that becomes quite troublesome for markets. I think yeah, pulling back from that big picture, we're seeing some rather inside baseball, but very important initiatives to standardize accounting standards for, for non-financial metrics, just as we saw you know, financial metrics get standardized decades ago to define really what important. a profit is. Yeah, really important. It's it's the kind of process nobody follows, you know, IFRS foundation meetings and IASB, you know, <laughs> pronouncements too too closely. Nobody, nobody normal, but it's going to matter, you know, how these come come down. And I think, you know, looked at in the round, this does herald a bit of a turning point in the ESG and stakeholder capitalism story. You know, so much of what we've seen to date has been business doing voluntary things. And there's been a really strong suspicion that companies have just been doing the easy things. They've been picking the low-hanging fruit. And I think more regulation will force them to do harder things and will force more transparency about which ones are actually doing those things. And it might also come at a bit more of a cost, at least in, in the short term. Well, I, I, your point about this balance, Andrew, is, is so important. And I love the, for communicators, uh, our listeners, this sort of setting of an agenda that's clear and understood and maybe a bit more honest, balancing long-term and short-term. I know, you know, some of our listeners might say, well, we also live in an era of activist investors, right? And CEO tenures are shorter than they used to be. But it, it just seems that that sense of balance has to be achieved by more of a sense of balance in their communications as well, too. That's that's a little speech by me, Andrew. You don't have to respond well, to that. Well, just one thought on that, <laughs> Gary. I mean, I think, yes, activist 
investors are the kind of the, the, the ghost of the feast, you know, the barbarians at the gate, whatever. But <laughs> but we've got a few examples where you know CEOs with a very strong story on sustainability managed to see them off. You know, yes. Paul Pullman managed to you know to avoid a kind of a merger with Kraft Heinz, mm-hmm. but you know, merging in living Kraft Heinz in a way that he thought would destroy a lot of value, even though there are people agitating to do it. And I think you know. A, gr- a good, a strong board, a strong CEO can play into this narrative from the major institutional investors. If BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street are all saying from the same hymn sheet about long-termism, about purpose, about sustainability, then it's kind of time to tell them to put their money where their mouth is when you know, somebody with 1% of the stock shows up and says, no, 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 you have to you know, give us some giant dividend now. <laughs> Well, I want to come back to Paul Pullman because you've written about him, I know. And I, but first, I want to talk about, I think it was the Rolling Stones song, the 19th nervous breakdown of the U.S. government has had in the past few years. You know, they're struggling here in the States with even something as seemingly obvious as increasing the debt limit, the ceiling, and of course, dealing with President Biden's request for trillions in infrastructure, social programs, et cetera. And in August, I thought you wrote an excellent column and you asserted that business needs to take a new approach to politics. And that quote, too often their behavior, meaning business, perpetuates the dysfunction they, the business leaders, decry. So tell us what you meant by that, Andrew. I think the story of my time as US business editor has been the last uh, four years, I guess, has been, the story of the relationship between business and politics getting scrambled, you know, business and government. Mm-hmm. You know, our biggest businesses are increasingly multinational rather than national. Politics, not just in the US, but around the world, has moved in a more populist and national direction, nationalist direction. You had the Trump period, clearly, where CEOs lived in fear of being the butt of the next tweet. And now Republicans who, you know, for, for years, have been just automatically seen as the party of business, are saying things like business should stay out of politics, in mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell's words, or decrying the kind of environmental and social agenda we've been discussing as woke capitalism. But I wrote that column in the wake of the events of January the 6th and the subsequent state-level fights over restrictive voting legislation that Republicans mm-hmm. made bring in from you know, Georgia to Texas, et cetera. And I think those have really raised the political stakes for business. First of all, January the 6th drew very harsh attention to any company that had donated to the campaign of a member of Congress who would not certify Joe Biden's electric election victory, thereby keeping alive the kind of the, the big lie. So that old way of engaging Washington is suddenly causing more reputational risks. Suddenly these companies have written a check, you know, 100,000 here, 200,000 there, exactly. are finding themselves in the headlines and headlights, which in a way they don't enjoy. Then second, you know, companies from Georgia to Texas are getting dragged into the headlines and being attacked from both sides for either saying too much or too little about changes to voting laws, which could make it harder for their own employees to vote. And many of these companies have did big get out the vote campaigns in last year and in previous years. And it's one of the one of the things they can all agree on. But you know, voting's a good idea. (laughs) We like democracy. (laughs) But you've also got this broader backdrop of Washington, whatever your politics are left or right, you know, successive administrations have achieved very little on the big social and environmental 
challenges of our time. You know, we, we haven't had great policy progress. And that has given companies the excuse, if you like, to fill this vacuum. We've had so many companies say, well, we have to right. know, come out with our own policies on these things because Washington's doing nothing. And we heard this a lot on, on climate, for example, in the Trump administration, when the Trump administration said it was going to pull back from the Paris Agreement on climate change. Umpteen companies stepped up and said, well, we'll do it instead. You know, and they some of them have rather enjoyed the idea that they're filling this vacuum, but some of them have not. But I think... You know, what I was saying in that column is that somehow all the donations, all the lobbying have not created a productive relationship between a healthy public sector and the private sector. Right. And as a result, companies can't kind of work with government to maximize their impact on these issues that they increasingly care about, whether they're social or environmental. I mean, you may not like the fact that business is the biggest funder of the US political system, but if you take that fact and if you just acknowledge that fact, I argue in that piece that it's time to ask some harder questions about what return on investment business is actually getting for that mm -hmm. money. And the big picture here is that every company will tell you that democratic stability is essential for economic stability. But suddenly democratic stability is in question in a way that I've never seen it in this country before yeah multinationals talk about country risk when they're investing in yeah far-flung parts on the other side of the Absolutely. world but suddenly u.s companies are running into country risk at home but they don't seem to have a plan for managing it yeah it, and it's funny i've been in conversations where people in business now in reference to the united states have conversations around rule of law you know yeah. which only used to apply as you suggest to other parts of the world that are less developed and so when that's happening, the usual kind of lobbying practice of you just engage with government to get your way on a specific bill and to dodge a particularly, you know, nasty piece of regulation is too limited. You know, it's not looking at this in a systemic fashion. You know, if the system is actually in some peril, and we can debate the extent to which it is, but if, if reasonable people are out there saying, oh, no, this could go badly wrong, it's not unreasonable for business to spend a little bit more time thinking about what role they could play in getting it back on track. So along those lines, and you, so you already referenced January 6th, the insurrection of the Capitol, George Floyd. What I'm fascinated by is that there's been a deafening silence around the Texas law restricting women's ability to get abortions. Why do you think that is, given... The, you know, what we've gone through in the last year. I would I would think at least some number of large companies might come forward. Yeah, companies are making case-by-case -case decisions on these things. Jamie Dimon was asked recently by, Axi by Axios, you know, which of these issues do you speak up on? And he said, well, some we do, some we don't, some we can't. And I think, yeah, most CEOs are looking at polling data. They're listening to what they're actually hearing from their employees in particular. So they know which issues are the most divisive. What's been fascinating over recent years is the number of companies that have been willing to speak up on issues that are often branded as being perhaps more divisive than the polls suggest they are. So gun, 
gun rights slash gun gun laws, mm-hmm. immigration. We've seen some fairly bold moves by big companies that we don't count see as particularly woke on these issues. I think in some cases there are real cost benefit questions. You know, if is signing a letter about human rights in Xinjiang going to get you closed down in China? You know, boards have to think pretty seriously about that. Yeah. But ultimately, I think these decisions often come down to: Do you have a dog in the fight? You know, do you have authority on this subject? You know, if you're sourcing a lot of cotton from China, you better be able to say that you've really scoured your supply chain and you're very confident that there's no Uyghur forced labor in the supply chain. But if and if you're one of the biggest employers in a state that's restricting voting rights or restricting women's access to, to healthcare, you're going to be asked which side you stand on. But I think so much of this comes down to who's asking you to speak up and how strong the employee voice is. And I think. If you go back to you know, the interventions by the big tech companies on bathroom bills, you know, all the way through to the racial equity demonstrations of last year and, and actions of last year, so much of this has been coming from the ground up. It's been employees going to the C-suite and saying, we need you to take a stand on this on our behalf. And I think the voting rights debate goes squarely to the racial justice debate, which their employees forced them to take a stand on after George Floyd's murder. I think the abortion issue, companies are taking longer to come to get comfortable with. I'm a little surprised in many ways that women in corporate America have not made this more of a kind of almost an HR issue. You know, mm. it's, it's a healthcare benefits issue. And I, But I wouldn't be surprised to see the debate move in that direction. I, I think the sort of activist community has not really worked through employees in that way mm-hmm. to date, but I think it, that may happen. Yeah, well, it's interesting. We kind of opened up our discussion today with Gary citing VRT and what the Business Roundtable was had done a few years ago in terms of staking out stakeholder capitalism. And yet what we're seeing in Washington now is a pretty aggressive campaign that they have underway to kill President Biden's proposal to raise corporate tax rates. Do you think that ultimately erodes their other position or is it just gonna be taken in in the general course of things? I think it's interesting that the position of big business is already eroding in the eyes of the public. If you look at the polls, it's quite a lot of support for business. But when you break that down, people really like mom and pop small businesses. Support for big business is about 18%. And that's down from about 23% a couple of years ago. So it's ebbing, despite everything we've been talking about, all these, you know, this nice social agenda that big business has been pushing isn't actually winning its huge amounts of trust yet. So that that's an interesting point in its own regard. But Judy Samuelson, the founder of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program, says you know, a reckoning on corporate taxes is coming. And I agree with that. I think I if agree. you look at the support for, for political candidates who advocate higher corporate taxes, I do see that risk. Corporate taxes just seem to be rising up the public agenda. You look at the the headlines about how much tax you know Amazon pays in a given year or any other you know, highly successful, highly profitable American company. And I think the challenge for the business roundtable, the Chamber of Commerce and groups like this is to explain why business shouldn't contribute something to fund things that it's actually been calling for for years. Because if you look at that program that's on the table at the moment, that's under debate, the infrastructure spending, greater access to community college, childcare facilities, 
action to combat climate change. These are things that business has been pleading with Washington to yeah. do for a very long time. Now, clearly, there's a lot but of the ways that business hates as well. Help, right, to, to those businesses. Sorry, sorry, Mike, I missed that. Was no, you... no, no, I, I was just saying, and there's clearly ways in which business could shape that agenda. Exactly, and I think there's not been much clarity from business about we like this, we don't like this. At the moment, there's a... I tuned into a business roundtable call recently where the rhetoric was all about how this would leave US corporate taxes, you know, the second highest in the OECD. And yeah, we really can't budge by another inch. And I'm not sure how persuasive the public finds that kind of rhetoric when they remember the 2017 corporate tax cuts and they see how strong corporate profits are right now. Your business is not hurting in the eyes of the public. And if corporate America's rhetoric is all about where we stand in the OECD, and President Biden's rhetoric is all about paying a fair share. I don't think those match up very evenly. So I think actually the messaging of this is not really working for business at the moment. Well, yeah, it's a contrast between the dinner table and the boardroom, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, you know, having worked at GE, I really don't know what you're talking about with corporate tax rates. You know, I've never heard of that topic before. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Anyway, uh, listen, I want to come back around to the role of the corporate communicator and agency, PR agencies as well, really, when you think about this, on driving company strategies toward more balanced view. You deal with a lot of public relations people. Are, are you seeing a change in how they respond to your questions about ESG? In other words, are they more accessible and, as you say, have a more honest narrative about where they are on this journey? Well, I think for, for, for many years, public relations people have been overly accessible on ESG, just looking <laughs> at the state of my inbox every morning. I am, I've been flooded for years with the unsolicited pitches on how nice everybody's companies are. And you know, when you took a closer look at 90% of those pitches, they didn't really add up very much and the the missing piece was always where is the impact i think i've seen i've downloaded more pdfs with pictures of windmills and sunflowers on than i care to remember but when you actually dig into where are the dollar figures it's those are harder to find but i think you know if you look at the, the snapshot now Companies have now had several years of having to engage with some serious exercises like UNSDGs. They've all been enlisted into multiple different industry groups. You know, they've been asked by the likes of the BRT to have a position statement on that. Every time they have to go to Davos, you know, the CEO has to have something to say on the topic of the day, you know, whether it's tree planting or, you know, treating employers employees more nicely so every company is more focused on it and they're more aware of needing to have a story to tell mm -hmm. about their place in society but i think the the quality of work behind that is still very very uneven and we see that in things like the net zero pledges that are coming thick and fast right. now. it's very easy for a company to say hey we woke up today and we decided we would be net zero by 2050 the number of companies that say that have the second paragraph saying and by the way by 2025 will be 20 percent of the way there by 2030 will be 33 percent etc so you know, they're not holding themselves to account for the shorter term they're, they're putting out these lofty nice sounding distant 
targets which the current CEO won't be around to, to be held accountable for. So I, I think what's changing now is you know, people in my position are filtering these things much more ruthlessly to look for where is the accountability, where are the dollar figures, where is the impact. And what are you doing starting today, you know, yeah. rather than... Exactly. Yeah, we, we, we need real-time action. Getting back to the earlier discussion around moral money and talking about environmental sustainability and profits and whatnot, you've recently interviewed former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman, who's been outspoken about the need for businesses to reduce their impact on the environment. While he was at the helm of Unilever, kind of built his strategy around sustainability. And I, I know this pretty well in that I used to work at that time for Unilever's number one supplier. As a, as a consequence, it, you know, part of our charge was to help them deliver against that strategy. And part of my remit was actually that company's sustainability. Now some investors were on the back end of kind of his days at Unilever. Pullman was criticized somewhat for his sustainability focus, even though broadly over the over his more than a decade tenure, the record of value creation was real and I think admirable. But in an era of rising investor activism, how does Pullman feel CEO should balance, you know, profit and purpose? Because as we were talking about before, the real goal, or at least what a lot of investors are looking for, is some sort of balance between that near-term and long-term, and want to see the business be financially successful and yet do good in society. Well, Paul Pullman starts off his new book with the story of how he fended off an unwanted deal with Kraft Heinz, which was very much a test case of whether investors would support a long-term sustainability strategy over the, the quick rewards of a, of a deal. But he's been saying for a few years now that when it comes to stakeholder capitalism, you know, sustainability measures, the cost of inaction for business is now higher than the cost of action. And I think that was not clear to everybody when he started saying that, but I think it's becoming clearer, particularly when you look at the reputational risks that companies run if they don't move with the times. And he runs through a whole list of reputational risks in pretty punchy fashion in his, in his book. And in this interview, he goes after the company's corrupt political donations. He tells <laughs> them to pay their taxes. There's a line in there about G, which we should probably fact check with you, Gary. But, um, oh, no. But I'd it, have to lay uh, that on the floor. Andrew, you know. <laughs> but and he you know he says executives should develop a sense of shame about their high pay. So this is not mm -hmm. traditional CEO uh, language. But at the heart, he's basically saying the value creation for the companies that haven't changed very much has been pretty dismal, even for Unilever. You know, it's used to growing up one, two, three percent on the top line, whatever it is. But then you have the kind of likes of. Yeah, Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger and all these interesting new innovative companies coming along, which are going, growing like weeds. And they're doing so by playing into a shift in consumer tastes, a shift in zeitgeist, if you like. So at the heart, this is really a manifesto calling for companies to 
be ahead of the changes that we can already see see are coming. He talks a lot about courage. He talks about mm-hmm. ambition, and you know, in the work he now does as a through his own kind of group, what he's post Unilever, he's trying to get groups of 20, 25% of an industry to band together and do the stuff that individually, which would be would be too costly for them to do. Nobody wants to sort of stick their head above the parapet. Nobody wants to be the first mover. But if you can persuade three or four or five of your competitors to move with you in a way that doesn't freak out the antitrust regulators, often you can start to change the economics of an industry and you know put enough capital collectively towards the R&D required for a new technology or whatever it may be. So yeah, it's it's about ambition, it's about collective action, and it's about really thinking about future value creation. And a little bit of also changing the incentive structure, it sounds like, too. Very much so. Anyway, for, for our, our listeners, uh, we're actually going to have next week, we're having Andrew Winston, who co-authored that book with Paul Palmer. Potter. I'll tune in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Andrew, last question. I can't let a journalist go without asking, what are you interested in writing about next? I think the biggest story for me is about our uncertainty collectively about businesses' place in society. We've seen corporate America stake out a very different role for itself from what we were used to, but it's done so without any real kind of public agreement. You know, in many ways, yeah, the narrative has been we're filling a vacuum left by dysfunctional or retreating government. And many of the things that companies have done under that umbrella, you might agree with or disagree with. But there's been no real rule book for this new role of business. Mm. And I think we're seeing increasing friction as a result of that. As I said at the beginning, I think ESG and stakeholder capitalism are increasingly contested. You know, there's a real backlash here at the same time that the building blocks are being put in place to make this meatier, more substantial, more focused on impact. I think that ultimately stakeholder capitalism, ESG, are the direction of travel, but I don't think the road will be without its bumps. And I think that's the challenge right now for business is to better articulate the social role that they want to play and to bring more people on board to that. Well said, well said, Andrew. Thank you, we'll look forward to reading that in the FT and in Moral Money. Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson, thank you, US Business Editor for the Financial Times. Thanks for being a guest on The Crux. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure talking to you both. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.